This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood, and thanks for taking the time to join us on today. A special welcome, as always, to those of you joining us for the first time. We're continuing with our anniversary celebration. Three years now. This is the third year anniversary of the World of UX podcast, and I thought that it would be great to celebrate the anniversary by doing something we hadn't done before, and that's taking time to host a series of episodes featuring new UXers. We call this the New UXer Symposium. Uh, and today, uh, we normally will have four people with us, but due to some technical technical difficulties, we only have three guests today, but that's okay. I think that, that uh, things will work out and we'll have the other guests on another show at another time. Uh, but uh, today, to start us off, and I'm going to introduce folks in alphabetical order by first name, and then we'll dive into all of our content here on today. Uh, today, take it away, Anne. Hi, Darren. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be with you guys today. Um, my story might seem a little long, but I think that's probably because I'm a lot older than everybody else. Go so give me a sec. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm in Sable, New York, which is far enough outside of New York City where I don't want to commute. Um, I live on Long Island and um, my tech journey started in the early 2000s, actually, where um, before that I had gotten my associates in culinary arts and worked as a chef on and off for my entire life. Oh, wow. But in wow. the early 2000s, I had gone to the Hendricks Institute, which is an 18-month program for web and graphic design, and I learned HTML and Flash programming. Ooh, and then 9-11 happens, and you know what <laughs> happens. There were zero tech jobs. And I thought it would be fun to have three kids. So um, <laughs> I had three children and then and two family businesses. Um, my husband had a construction business and I had um, a hospitality business, um, which is an education unto itself, which I don't really think reads in my portfolio or my resume as well as I hoped it would. Um, I always, I consider it to be, equal to at least a master's degree. And I always joke that I have a PhD in life. Um, and fast forward to two years ago, I took one of your favorite boot camps, the Google boot camp. And I knew halfway through it that it was not scratching the surface. Um, mm -hmm. So after I finished it, I started volunteering because I learned by doing. So um, I got a volunteer position with the inclusive group um, and as well as with TechFleet. So I was working two jobs for free for a very long time. Um, and honestly, I did learn more on those projects than in any boot camp or any, any mm -hmm. you know, self-taught, you know, work is work. Work is where you learn. Yeah. Yep. Um but as someone who has loved school and is on a budget, um, I have gotten seven other certifications in the last two years wow. pertaining to UX, UI, 
and AI. Um, and AI is sort of where I'm pivoting now. And nice. I am currently in classes for conversational AI design. Um, because I do, I don't believe AI is going to take our jobs, but I do believe that people who know how to use AI will. Um, so that's kind of where the story ends. I'm, I have four weeks left in my conversational AI design class. And I, I'm hoping that that skill in combination with UX might be enough to actually land me a job. Um, I do feel like chatbots that actually work were something that, <laughs> because they're so terrible, I, I was like, I'm going to do that and I'm going to make them better. So that's the hope and that's the goal. Awesome, man. Awesome background. It, it is just hearing that reminds me there are a thousand different paths that people can take. It's just, it's amazing. Wow. And, and, and UX happens in the real world outside yes. of digital. Yes. People don't get that. Like dealing with brides. Yes. Talk about clients, you know, difficult clients. Yes. Let me introduce you to a bridezilla. <laughs> You'll understand us. And I don't think that those things get enough credence when people look at your resume and your portfolio they don't they this the the you know the the digital only ux designer doesn't it, like the real world counts too and yes. i don't think it actually does yes when you're being looked at for a job yep and i tell people all the time i mean look at the room where you're in right now there's a ux in your room there there's a ux in your car there's a UX when you get into an elevator. There's a UX when you park at the airport and you need to find your car. You need to find your flight. We're surrounded. UX is basically a pervasive discipline. And the more that people learn about the pervasive nature of the discipline, the further you could potentially go. So I know people who've been working with conversational AI for years. Uh, it's been a very small market, but it is growing. So I think that that's fantastic. That's good to hear. Next I think up, that's the rush right now is who, who can make the next chatbot that like actually works, not Alexa, not Siri, <laughs> but one that like is. I, I think there's a rush right now to try to get there, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and the, you know what's sad is the same hurdle that will keep us from getting there because just like UX saved everybody from the dot com bust in the late nineties. UX can save us from this horrible world of conversational AI that exists today, as Anne mentioned, but UX maturity stands in the way because people don't know how to hire on average. They don't know how to interview. They don't know how to review portfolios. There's all of this stuff. They don't know who to bring in because in order to really achieve it, you're either going to have to hire people who have bring some experience with conversational AI to the table, which companies don't know how to do frankly uh and and then are you gonna are you gonna who's gonna do that versus just bring somebody in and fill seats which is what companies tend to do so so some of the challenges that that we're gonna encounter to get there we could get there in a year or two but that's in a best case scenario and anybody who's been in UX for any length of time knows we're far from <laughs> we're far from best case scenarios so as we say all the time, love the discipline. If you love it, you'll be able to weather the storm and you'll be able to get through things and achieve your goals. Uh, if you're chasing a buck, uh, then 
Um, yeah, I feel sorry for you. And then again, I don't because nobody should be chasing the buck. Uh, there's this is too volatile of a of a discipline for somebody to come into UX chasing after a buck because you're going to come and those people come run into so much consternation and so much hostility it can wear you out and and I won't even get into some of the tangents I could get in about that but let's move forward in the introduction that's a great way to start us off thank you and for that uh Isaac you are next on the alphabetical list. <laughs> okay, so my name is Isaac. I'm from Ghana, based in Dubai, but I'm now back in Ghana for a few holidays with the family. So my background is in physics, physics and electronics programming. That's the degree that wow. I have, and automation and robotics. So from the university, I worked in manufacturing car manufacturing company which was the first manufacturing company in Africa. That's Kantanko Automobile. So basically, I think when you are into robotics and you are building automation stuff, you get to a point that you see that product that you are building is not being used by users. So that's how I got into UX design, because I wanted to find out why <laughs> users were not <laughs> adapting to using our product. So that got me interested into UX design. So I started as a self-taught UX designer mm -hmm. because of my curiosity into finding solutions to the problems that the company was facing. Then from there, I think I wanted to go more into US full-time because I was, I think, I was burned out when it came to automation and programming and <laughs> business and the research, this kind of stuff. So I wanted to go full into UX design. But I think basically every job that I apply were looking for certificates. Like they wanted the former certificate <laughs> to show that you are, <laughs> you are a UX designer. Mm. And also in our part of the world, you can't get a certificate for UX design because I would say it's not fully developed as in mm -hmm. when someone says you are a UX designer or a product designer. So that was when I got introduced to the famous Google <laughs> UX design certificate. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think I took it and I read one article. <laughs> I think I read one article about UX design and comparing it to what I learned from Google, I was like, that's not even scratching the surface. So I then took the Udacity UX nano degree also to see if it's a big difference from mm -hmm. the Google one. But I think it was more valuable because with the Google one, I found out that sometimes you can even submit your results, your findings, or yes, the test, and you can submit a blank sheet. Yep. And you get, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how I, go, uh, I did the Dusty one. I found value in it. Then from there, I thought of finding resources that will help me let's say, move on to the U.S. food proper. Yeah. So I got introduced to the World Bank. The World Bank was organizing a program during COVID. Oh, wow. So they wanted communities in Ghana to use resources in their community to find solutions. So it's like, if you find a problem in your community, you only use the resources in your community to create a solution to it. So 
that was when I got introduced to it because of my background in physics, background in automation, and also the little bit that I knew about UX design. I got into, introduced into the program. So I think I had a full one-year training into UX design, uh, research and everything. And the first product that I, I, I would say I fully built was a blood donation platform. So in Ghana, it was difficult for people to get access to blood when they are in hospital. Like, unless you call your family member to know the blood group before <laughs> the person will come to the hospital <laughs> to donate blood. So I wanted to create, create a platform that will wow. help people to connect with donors. Because in the research, we found out that people even didn't know they could donate blood. And some too had superstitious beliefs. So the platform was there to help resolve those kind of issues so that mothers giving going to give birth to, I think the rate of childbirth mortality was very high due to uh, shortage of blood in the hospital. So that's how I got into that platform. Then from there, I think the rest is history. I moved to Dubai to work on a few products from the fintech, e-commerce, and other stuff then. That's fantastic stuff. And your introduction, your story reminds me of how there's a move now. My boss was actually talking to me about it just yesterday, uh, designing for the greater good yeah. of, of humanity. Yeah, I think I've, I've worked mostly in social impact products, especially in Ghana. Social, one was using coconuts to create briquettes. So it's a sustainable product. So the coconut hacks, you turn it into briquettes for cooking and other stuff. One, two, it, it was very interesting. I'm, wow. <laughs> I'm on very interesting projects. See, and, that's, yeah. and you remind me also of how, for me, you know, 28 years this year for me, but the thing about it, about UX, that one of the things that keeps me going, that keeps my energy level really high, I love where UX intersects with life is the way I describe it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that makes it more, because I, I, I want I want to help. I, I think my boss asked me about it, but I think, I, I think I've been more involved or at least more focused than I think I do. And I still need to build my acumen there directly, but to be aware of where what you're doing impacts the world at large, not just selling a car or facilitating a purchase on Amazon, so to speak, or some e-commerce venture, but just being able to improve the quality of life that people have, that's some exciting stuff. Yeah. I think the recent one that I worked on before moving to Dubai was using sawdust. That's the, when you go to the sawmill, so they were turning it into plant medium. So you use it to, when you are doing seedlings, greenhouse, you use those kind of sawdust too. So it solves the problem of plant disease during the nursery stages and stuff. Wow. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff. We're going to move on to the next person, but we're going to go back a step, a step back because our person who had some technical difficulties, it looks like the technical difficulties may be over. Uh, no, he's he said so. Let's go ahead and introduce Aman. Go ahead, take it away, Aman. Thank, thank you so much, Darren, for giving me the opportunity. And hello again. 
Hey everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. My name is Aman. I'm 19 years old. I started my journey at Take Two years back, but at first I would like to tell you guys what I am. So I'm from Bangladesh. I'm studying in civil engineering. I am on my third year. I will graduate next year, probably, inshallah. Wow! So I started my journey at Take Two years back. At first, I was a motion designer. I was doing that professionally. Then some, uh, the another day, like suddenly, I got found in love in Figma, and I just transitioned <laughs> into product design. I just wrote an article about it as well. So how I transitioned from a product uh, from a motion designer to a product designer in a year. So from there, I did couple of gigs, couple of projects, couple of jobs. So. Both of them are for like uh, getting the experience, but currently I'm on a full-time role. I'm working as a lead and founding product designer at Chatfair. I am founding their design team there. I'm shaping their product as well. And if you say about my journey, so I'm purely self-taught. I never took any course. I never mm-hmm. did any fancy uh, pay, uh, like paying any anything like paying any course nothing never i all i just learned by myself by watching great people like darren and there are other many designers out there i go on youtube watch tutorials and learn the craft and yeah that's pretty much about me wow that's amazing you want, i don't know if you know this about me i was actually self-taught also high five <laughs> <laughs> the one of the things that worked for me and, and you actually just inspired me to do something else I, I think it might be a good idea for me to put together a a self-taught curriculum yeah so I think the, that would be awesome <laughs> because yeah. I know how to do it because people don't know yeah. this about me I've been doing education longer than I've been doing UX and so you I've asked chat GPT right bunch of questions oh god <laughs> no, just kidding uh, yeah, and, and you see remember somebody said that on linkedin i asked chat B- you, oh yeah no i'm not all asking the time on linkedin no, no 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 we're not uh, here we go sound effect let's get one <laughs> <laughs> i gotta do that again <laughs> where chat gpt has its place but it certainly isn't there but I've done that. I've been training people since 1983. So I'm older than I wow. look. I'm older than I look. And uh, I know how education works. I've got five instructional design certifications, and that's what I'm getting my PhD in. Uh, I'm teaching wow. at five universities, and that's because I don't have time to teach at 10. And they're still <laughs> coming to me asking me to teach at more places. And these people come to me. I don't go to them and apply. They come to me. Uh, so I, but I know how education works, and that was something that lent itself in my favor to be self-taught. Because, and and I'll throw this in here as sort of a little bonus topic. But education, uh, and some of you may have heard me say this before, it, it revolves around three major factors: presentation, application, and feedback. So the presentation is when you partake of the content. Application is, and we we'll think Anne was saying, learn by doing. You better believe it. <laughs> and so that's where the application comes into play. You know what you should be doing, but now you get a chance to practice it so you can sharpen your skill. You don't get to sharpen your skill till you actually do a thing. Then you get feedback on how well you did it, what you need to continue doing or where you need to improve. And then you keep going through that cycle over and over again. As long as self-taught people go through that path they can actually get somewhere. I got my first full-time UX gig without a degree. Well, I had an associate's degree. 
I didn't have a four-year degree. And a lot of companies were requesting four-year degrees. And and I couldn't get a job early on. That was the that was the blockade early on in my in my UX career. My full-time UX career was that I didn't have a degree. And so you couldn't, I would apply anyway, and then you get shot down because you you never know. Because sometimes people make exceptions for what someone may or may not have from a qualifications perspective. Now it's different. You don't, it depends on the company when it comes to whether or not a degree is needed, but you can be self-taught and achieve some level of success. But I think that people need help even when it comes to being self-taught to know where to go because people don't have the educational background because I was was involved from a scientific perspective when it came to building learning. So I knew what it took for me. I can pass that on and give it to other people. So let's say that in my busy schedule, we just finished talking about that before we start recording, right? I always find it something else to do, but I think that's something big that I could give back to the community because I know how it works and I've done it. And you want to save some money? Go this route. Uh, it's definitely yeah. better than boot camps. Yeah. Here we go Self-taught again. Self-taught is the biggest thing, which I like, which I see in people. Because if you, if our job as a product design is to connect the dots, is to getting things done. And as a self-taught, you have, you do the same thing. You have to get your things done. So it's a, it's anyway, it's the actual thing. What you'll be doing after getting the job or after getting into the position. So I think if anyone who's just starting out, rather than spending millions and billions of dollars into boot camp, if you just give yourself <laughs> at least six months of a try, you can learn more than the boot camp. But there is a benefit also in boot camp. There is proper mentor who can give you the direction. And if you do that alone, you can't have the direction. But if you can go to ADP list and ask anyone for the direction, they will probably give you. So I recently started mentoring junior peoples for giving like and having more knowledge about the craft which i am in but most of the people just thinks that if they do any bootcamp they are product designer but bro i am saying this in this podcast today <laughs> your only your only journey starts when you have an actual job getting a certificate or getting a degree or anything can't give you any job if you don't know how to get your shit done and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that and take it a step further. Um, boot camps. There's something that we're doing now, and this this term is not has not made its rounds yet. But I'll I'll say it here. It's called boot camp triage. Going to a boot camp can actually set you back. Um, yeah. People in some point in enough to mm-hmm. throw you mm-hmm. off for three to five years. Um. It is, it's one thing to, to, they, they sell people on a bunch of false promises. Yeah. They, right. they only scratch the surface. Yeah. Of right. the work Undoubtedly the hardest truth. Yep. And because of that, at the same time, they're giving people a false sense of security. And it's the cognitive element of the boot camp. That is the biggest problem because of what they, yeah. the, the people like, like Ann says she went to, was, oh, the, and oh, Isaac said that he went to, oh, the, Ann said something to this degree too. He went to the boot camp. The boot camp didn't really do anything. Isaac went to the Google thing. You can turn in a blank sheet of paper and pass and, and, and get a passing. You can get the certificate, not certification. That's not a certification. You can get a certificate from Google. And like Isaac said, 
Some companies, if you don't have a certificate, you can't get a job, which explains why people are going through those programs to get a certificate just so they can flash the paper. Yeah. But this, this, the ethics, education requires ethics. Education requires scientific backing. The best education requires accreditation. Boot camps have none of these things. And so, and, and, and I said this before and I'll say it again. I have never worked with a boot camp grad that didn't cause me to lose sleep at night. <laughs> and, and for and that. One thing too, like <laughs> boot camp teaches you some bad habit that takes a long time for you to unlearn. Bingo. So, yeah. And that's why we call it triaging. Uh, sometimes you may have heard me in the past refer to it as an enema. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, need, you need a cognitive enema. Every time you get in, I mean, we liken it, you have filet. And then you have uh, meat with bones in it. I know everybody doesn't eat meat, but I think you still get the metaphor. I'd rather eat meat with no bones and not have to fool with the bones. Uh, because when you eat this meat, and it's not even meat that they're offering, when when and people think that it's a good start. But it, it, I mean, freeze frame on that. People think that it's a good start to go to a boot camp or something of that sort. But But freeze frame and look, who's saying that? Yeah. Who's saying that it's a good One start? Thing, is, is it qualified people that are saying it? Is it experienced people that are saying it? Is it an expert opinion? It's right. It's <laughs> like it, it, it's people who don't know. And, and then somebody like me comes along and says, no. And I'm like decorated up the wazoo. I'm not saying it to make an issue myself. I'm citing a fact that that this is my backing. This is my background. These are my credentials. And and when someone with my credentials comes in and says that, everybody should stop. Yeah. But in our day and time, they're overriding my expertise, and that makes for shipwreck. Yeah. And and God forbid you go to work for that individual later. So that's my that's my take yeah. to sort of find go ahead. Go ahead, Ama. Another thing I wanted to share here, like there, like today in the world, every Thomas and Johnsons are mentored, like they have their own boot camp. But <laughs> before having or before give, jumping up any boot camp, try to look for people who is hundred x better than you, not ten x. Because if you <laughs> if you don't set yourself the bar, if you don't set the bar to the moon, you can't jump for the twentieth floor. So that's the thing. My mentor, like. Not my mentor, my inspiration. His name is KVS Chetan. Hmm. He's from India. He was in Apple. Now he is in Trade Republic. It's in it's in Berlin, Berlin I guess. Okay. He is one of my greatest inspiration in the world, in the design sector. And he's a self-taught. So if he can do it, he, he can crack Apple. I can do it. Everyone else can do that. And from that, I have the confidence that having or being a self-taught is not a curse. If you can do your job right, if you can play your card in the right place, you can be, you can crack anything in the world. You can, you can. And also, I think one thing that is also affecting the industry is when it comes to bootcamp, it also affected how portfolios are done. It's like now all the portfolios of yes. case studies look the same. So yeah. because <laughs> when you're at interview, your recruiter is also looking at the same. It's like the infection has moved from the UXS to the hiring managers to. <laughs> so now you go to everyone and you are like, a portfolio that does not need some specific feature has it in it because that's the format that the person has been taught. So 
even if you did the research and didn't get those, let's say, data, you manufacture a data, then put it there so that it will conform to the structure that he or she was taught at bootcamp on how yep. to build a portfolio. Yep. And a lot of people don't know that um, this is only making its rounds in certain places. Some companies, if they see your portfolio and it has that bootcamp template look and feel, a lot of people are immediately disqualified from consideration. It's like no if, if you went to the boot camp, you went to the boot camp. Okay, we can't go back in time. You know, we're just not the Avengers. We don't have a. We can't. We you know. We can't. We, this is not the. You know, any of that. We don't have any anything to allow us to do that. So, and that's why why I mentioned triage and and enemas because okay, you did it. Now what? One of the first things you need to do is change your portfolio. Because you yeah. don't need it to look like a thousand other people that are just like you. Uh, because that that's going to work against you. And it's important for people to also know what is a portfolio? And it's one of the topics that we were going to cover too. And then we still got to get to Zach's introduction. But a portfolio is meant to show that you understand. Well, number one, it's meant to show tell your story. So storytelling is a big part of it, and you can demonstrate your storytelling skill. It's meant to demonstrate that you understand or that, I mean, people think it's about process. You know how many processes there are? And, and, And so only certain companies look at a process and decide whether or not you're a good candidate based on whether or not you have a process. Everybody has a process, so that's sort of silly. Um, and, but some companies still, you got to have a process. You, we don't use that process. So what, you know, (laughs) so that's when we get into UX maturity because the, the companies that are least mature put too much emphasis on a process. And then you have to ask yourself, and I know you need a job, you need to keep the lights on and all that kind of stuff, but you got to ask yourself, do you really want to work there? If it says if, and that's where it'll come up. If you have three things that are looking pretty good. Uh, the company that's the most mature is going to be the better for you. I'm telling you that you, you, as a person who almost died via their job once, I'm telling you, you don't want to go that route. You folks have no idea how they, first off, when you're trying to get your first UX job, you have no idea how hostile this discipline actually is. Uh, then you want to have peace of mind. You want to enjoy what you do. And you don't want to have to go to work. And if you have a 40-hour week, you don't want to spend 30 hours doing work and 10 hours fighting. So the the culture that you go into is going to be part of it. And, and some people may not be experiencing it now. Hang around for a little bit longer. Go into enterprise. Watch and see what happens when you go into enterprise. And, and people think that enterprise, that they're very mature. And a lot of them are not. And they, they, they try to present to the world that they're mature by putting their design systems out. We have a design system. Therefore we are mature. No, you're not. Matter of fact, a design system might show that you're not mature because they try to cookie cutter everything. Uh, so you can't cookie cutter. UX is a, is a, it's a science and then I'll get off my soapbox. It's a science. It revol- it, it requires high levels of EQ to excel at it. About to teach that class, Zach, at UCLA. About to roll out an EQ job, uh, EQ for UX uh, course at UCLA. And it also requires the ability to pivot, which is something that no boot camp and even the universities can't teach you. 
So the 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 pivot, and, and you're going to get that more out of interaction, just like what we're doing right here, because it at least it plants the seed. And when you can have that seed planted to know, I've got to be able to think on my toes because it's not going to go the way that you thought that it would go because of that process. That's why processes are sort of silly. Um, but when we can get people to understand that, we're in a lot better shape, a lot better shape. But let, let's bounce over to the other, get the other intro in, and we're I think we're moving along nicely here. But Zach, let's go ahead and Zach has been waiting there patiently some some uh, twenty some odd minutes, thirty minutes, <laughs> and then Zach finally no gets to introduce himself. <laughs> no, it's been fun to listen in, and and you know, uh, but yeah, that said, um, my name's Zach. I've been working in UX research for almost three years now. I've been working for Fly Homes as the only researcher. Um, leading that the research there for a year and a half now. And I got my start, I, I'm actually, well, a little bit about myself. I'm, I'm really interested in the intersection of, of course, business needs and UX um, or user needs, but then also film as well and how you can use that mm. to, um, you know, storytell essentially, like can I explain the, like your, your insights? And I'm also really into ideation, like, how do we take these insights and actually do something with them? Because I was uh, in a position where there wasn't necessarily a formal ideation process. And I was like, well, <laughs> this would only help my insights. You know, this would only help the research I'm doing. So um, I also find that really interesting. But I actually got started um, as a, I was working in a restaurant. I went to school for film. In fact, I went I had three associate degrees just because I didn't know what I wanted to do mm. and I couldn't find something I was happy with. And even the film industry, I, I had my degree and I worked on a couple sets and was just like, this is not the culture I want to be part of. This is not <laughs> even my film, but my buddies in film school are no longer really working in that field. Wow. But that said, um, I was working in restaurants and I was a manager and realized that a couple of our restaurants in our district, our little region, our uh, district, were not doing very well. And I was like, okay, well, what's happening? Like, why is it only these stores that are being affected? Like, can we figure this out? And they're like, well, do what you want. <laughs> you know? So, and I had a friend kind of telling me about UX and I was reading like things from the Nielsen Norman group to get an idea of what he was talking about. And I was like, this is really interesting. And like, I love this. Like, let me try this. Um, and so I started talking to regulars and people who were first time, just all different sorts of people and getting an idea of their perception of, you know, the quality and the service and all these different things. And I started understanding like, oh, we're in a very bougie area and people expect a certain level of quality. And like the company had been like downgrading their food Ooh. and it worked in areas where they were like lower income and people like, well, Hey, I can actually get access to this food now. Um, so it was a good thing in some areas, but where we were, it was not. So it was really interesting to kind of learn that and see UX work. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to double down. Um, and it actually was ironically good timing, although because COVID happened and I was like, Oh no, like I was out of a job, but I had all this time to study UX. So I took a year and a half to study UX and try to find a job in that. And, um, and I went to UCLA Extension where Darren mm -hmm. is teaching uh, information architecture, I think, in a in a, like a month from now. Right. I, I thought I oh, saw that. Yeah. Well, we actually just completed the first one and we got the second uh, the second uh, time we're running the course is in, in. Yeah. In June. Yep. 
Congrats. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. Yeah, but that, that was a great, a great program. Definitely a little better than a boot camp. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was you're in like 16 week courses and you have to take at least I, I want to say it was like six courses, although I, I took an extra one. And and then I did other stuff on top of that, too, of course, like read books. Um, man, books are, <laughs> I feel like, not mentioned enough. But yes. like the inmates are running the asylum about mm-hmm. face. Like there's certain books where uh, I, I go back to those. I reference those all the time. Yes. Um, yeah, that's about it's enough about me, I guess. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. And I'll, I'll piggyback uh, with your segment there about the books. People I get, you would not believe, well, you might, <laughs> how many inquiries I get. Can you be my mentor? Can you spend any time with me? Can we get together? <laughs> All the time. And, and people don't realize I have a full-time job. I teach at five universities. I'm a, I'm a doctoral candidate. And, and, and that's just the beginning of, of that. That's... 70% of what I do, but I'm always busy. And I just, it's just not even feasibly, it's not even possible to, to respond in kind to all the requests that I get. I said that to say this books are the secret sauce because, you know, you might not be, and and, and we said this, uh, I think last time is that it's very difficult to be able to connect with people that you really are going to get a lot out of spending time with <laughs> the people who have the most to say and can impact you the most have the least amount of availability. So how do you get around that books, books, the, the books are available. You don't need to reserve any time with them. The, they always have the same information in them. Uh, old books actually say, it just mentioned a couple books that, that Zach just mentioned. The inmates are running the asylum. And about face, those are older books, and the content still carries weight. Today, you can spend time in those books, digest it, and then the beauty of it is, and I believe I talked about this in another episode, there's a lot of power in rereading, and and people don't understand that. If you digest a book at the one-year mark in your career, and then you Read it again at the five-year mark. And I see a hand nodding your head. You read the book again at the nine-year mark or the five-year mark. You are, you've ascended to a different level of personal UX maturity, which means that you digest information differently. You can find application of content differently. Because the truth is, no matter how much we dive into a book, we only remember certain things at certain points. So we have to go into the book again to try to set up additional triggers to help vault us forward even more. So books are, people need to dive into books. And, and sadly, a lot of the newer books, uh, I'll just say it, they suck. Uh, a lot of newer books rehash old content. Um, please stay away from Medium for the most part. Medium, medium is a cesspool of people who publish because there is no intermediary. You, you can publish and you don't have to get past a, a managing editor. You could write tic-tac-toe, eeny miny mo click publish and it's live on, on medium. And then somebody says I'm published on medium. That's nothing to brag about. Anybody can be published on medium. The, t- the village idiot can be published on medium and the village idiot is on medium. So it's, it's in fact, quite a few village idiots are on medium. So that's not, that's nothing. The, the, the thing that we want to dive into uh, with regard to uh, um, the, that relearning is, Tap into, oh, that's why I have my book recommendation list. Tap into the books 
build your library, understand that in order to excel in UX, you're going to have to be committed to lifelong learning and books are the perfect solution. You got to be aware of YouTube. There's a lot, a lot of the stuff that's happening on Medium, it's happening on YouTube, it's happening on Instagram, it's happening on, on TikTok, uh, it's happening on LinkedIn. I saw a post yesterday about design processes, and it had something like 15,000, something crazy, some crazy number of likes, and I'm going, this is ridiculous. It, it was a ridiculous post. And when I, I looked, I read it. I I, you saw that too? I read the post. Yeah. <laughs> and you know how much the person said? <laughs> I think Nothing. That, I think the person. One, same thing. Repeated, repeated, repeated. One creator on LinkedIn to, I think she transitioned into UX, I would say four or five months ago. And <sighs> she has garnered, I think, 15, 12,000 followers now just because of <laughs> sharing some things and I think she has been complaining about senior I'll say veterans like you calling her out on yeah. the content that she's been posting <laughs> and I was like if this thing I can find it on Google <laughs> exactly the, the and, <laughs> yeah the, the person who did the post about about um processes all they did was, you could tell that all they did was Google some factoids about each process. The factoid about a process has nothing to do with the application of the process. It has nothing to do with the critical thinking that differentiates between the processes. And then you got, I think it was 1,500, almost 1,600. For what? It, it, and, and this is part of the problem in UX. I was quiet for 17 years. Nobody knew who I was in the U.S. community because I was quiet and I was taking things in and I was growing. You couldn't pay people to be quiet for practically 17 minutes today. And, and, and when you consider the fact that there was no misinformation in U.S. prior to 2011 and today it's everywhere. And then how in the world does this person say nothing and what they say go viral? That's the problem we have in, in the discipline today, a major problem. You know, the person today that, that that wrote me, I mentioned this before we started recording, and the person kept saying UX UI, which is going to transition us into another topic. But the person kept mentioning UX UI, but they're giving tips. Here's, if you need 15 tips to help you get better in UX UI, and I stopped right there. The mere fact that you said that means that we shouldn't be listening to you, period, Period. And one of the funny part is most of the thing which they retain, they pretend themselves, they write it, but it's a, it's like it's made by Chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, I see those posts and I can't wait until you pass. And I, I think I think sometimes when I see a post, the first thing I go, I look at the profile to see if the person has written UI UX before I even come. <laughs> right. If you see UI UX, you know Darren's gonna pounce. And if you see uh, AI generated uh, personas, you know, Debbie Lovett's going to pounce. <laughs> and and the, the, the problem is, those who are liking it are sometimes, they say people are transitioning to their food. And the damage that is being done to, let's say, the next five or 10 years, designers who are coming on board is very like big. It's huge because yep. they have seen the content and they think it's, I'll say, like valuable enough to like, comment, and share it. Yep. So if you are posting that kind of content. You think like you are getting followers or connections and stuff, but 
you are also bringing the discipline down, as you say. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. And then, and then people will have what and some of you may have heard me mention this before. There's a, a concept I call baby bird syndrome. And if you ever see a baby bird being fed by mama bird, you, I, I call it eyes wide shut. They, they, their eyes are like completely shut tight. Their mouths are wide open and they're taking in whatever baby bird, whatever mama bird drops in. And so a lot of people who are new to the discipline, they'll pretty much gravitate to anything that's presented and it's like, no, this this discipline revolves around critical thinking, which means you cannot accept everything that crosses your plate. And you can't be like this person I was talking about who, when I gave my input to let them know, no, this is incorrect. Matter of fact, you should be ready to embrace that because of who told you. And not only because we told you, but we provided information to validate and confirm the validity of what, oh, that's redundant, to, to, to confirm that what we said is accurate. That you can take what we said, don't respond right away, go look it up. Uh, yeah, that is true. Yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have posted that. And, and this put yourself out there thing that people inspire new UXers to do is so dangerous because people post things before they found out that it's even legit. I did, you folks have seen my comic strip, right? There's, yeah. there's an episode I think I'm going to run back today that uh, the most recent one I did, which is AI generated. It, the art is ge- is AI generated. The script is written by me, but the art is AI generated. And I think that's because the other assets I was using, other people start using them. So it looks like it's being copied or something. So like you have to get out of there. But the, a person is coming in and offering someone a plate of poop. If you, have you folks seen that one? <laughs> <laughs> they're often to play the poop and talk about how good it is. And like, no, that's obviously poop. It smells. It's obviously looks like poop. It smells like poop. And one of the things that I said in the script was you must have been around it so long. You can't smell it anymore. And that's the challenge today that, that people have to develop a filter. When you first yeah. get started yeah. in UX, you don't have one. None of us did. Yeah. And, and so you have to be able to develop a filter to say yay or nay because crap content gets a lot of play. And, and it shouldn't, but it gets a lot of play because people don't have filters. Keep like, like, you know, 2,000 people like it. And then when pe- and then people get, they buy into it from a biased perspective. And because everybody else likes it, it must be okay. No, the fact that everybody likes it might be proof that it's not okay. You don't know who liked it. You just know that it has likes. So you have to then dismiss the like, look at the content, and analyze it. If you don't know, analyze it. If you don't have the ability to analyze it thoroughly, analyze it to the best of your ability, and then keep asking questions. But when you partake of something that you should be rejecting, it sets you back. And like Isaac just said, it sets the discipline back. Because guess who finds out? When you partake of garbage content, you embrace it, and then you're going to repeat it or interject it into your work somewhere. You're, you're going to go into a meeting with stakeholders, and you're going to say it. Guess who already has the critical thinking that many new UXers don't? Stakeholders. And if you say something that stakeholders can recognize as being garbage, guess who they think is garbage next? <laughs> you. <laughs> because you brought that garbage. You offered them a plate of poop. 
and they recognize that it's poop. So then they start with you and they think you're poop. And then now they think that the team is poop. And then they te- they think that UX is poop. And that's why, frankly, a lot of people don't know this, but that's why a lot of the layoffs occurred in the, U- in the UX circle because people present garbage and folks recognize it as garbage. They don't come back to you and tell you it's garbage. But how much how much do you fail to see transparency among people in leadership? We shouldn't be surprised at that. I know somebody who they came in and wiped out the whole UX department. Just everything was fine on Tuesday. They came in on Wednesday and the whole department got wiped out because somebody didn't somebody hated UX. If a UX team is doing what it's supposed to do, nobody's going to hate it. The only way somebody's going to hate UX is that the UX is not bringing value. You mean to say like uh, UX researchers are the poop because they are not getting their things done and that's why they are being laid off, like the whole department. So Anybody. Can, I, can we... Oh, go ahead. Can we think like that, like the UX researcher are the poops of every kind of companies or big giants who are not doing their work in a good way? I'd say it's, it's not just the researcher necessarily. It could be the researcher, it could be the designer. Um, it could be, and, and you know, different people in different companies with different titles and different functions, but yeah. they don't see, they don't separate us. So okay, you as right. UX and, and mm-hmm. these UX people, why are you here? Why should I keep paying you? And, and, and that, that question doesn't have to get a- asked. Um, it's being, it's always being thought. Yeah. Why it's like yeah. our jobs to be constantly showing the yes. return on investment yep. and driving yeah, growth for the company. Way. Yep. Yeah. Because and if they don't find the value at first, the money is coming in. So if they don't find value, so they will keep the team and everything. But if they see that the money is not coming in, the company is struggling. That's when that's questioning everything that the U.S. department is doing, the design department is doing. So I think if you show return of investment, always yes. you have a, you have a place at the head of the table and you can argue your case. But if you don't show return of investment, then when the acts come down, the first team that goes is the U.S. team. Yeah. It used to be that the instructional designers got were the first to get the axe. That's what used to happen. Now, UX teams, a lot of UX teams are masquerading. Now, you probably heard me talk before about posers, retrofits, and upstarts. So a lot, there's a lot of that going on. And, and the companies know where those people are <laughs> a lot of the time. They just don't share that they know. Uh, and if you have a lot of companies won't bring in somebody with my level of expertise because I know when I see it and I can help shield the team from that and she keep the team from hiring that person when they when they make it to the interview stage uh so i can save the company tens of thousands of dollars by by doing that by having somebody like me on board but companies aren't doing like doing that a, a lot of times people at my level of expertise are frowned upon fought against and we won't be hired they, they shoot us down in a heartbeat and they don't realize what they're getting you're about to say Ann. Well, that, it, it keeps bringing me back to this place where I keep landing. And of course, it's a little bit self-serving, but um, the mandatory bachelor's degree, right, versus the business experience makes me absolutely, like, frustrated <laughs> because yep. I, I know about making money in the real world and would be such an asset to any founder because yep. I understand about labor cost and budgets and actually losing money for 
a person whose livelihood depends on my decisions versus somebody who has a mandatory bachelor's degree in anything. Some of these jobs, it's like, well, we, as long as it's in, in somewhat related fields, um, we'll, we'll hire you versus somebody who doesn't have it. And it, it just, it irks me so much because the, where is the value in that, in, in the person and the, profitability like who who knows how to make a profit who understands about making money who understands about business constraints who understands about pleasing um a client like i talk about critical thinking where's yes. the critical thinking in the hiring oh yes <laughs> it's uh it, it's weird because it's it's bad in general and then because ux is so misunderstood it just amplifies that it yeah. amplifies it. And then companies, it, it goes back to UX maturity, but there's a another piece of it that just has to do with just corporate, a lack of corporate maturity in general it has nothing to do with UX, where a lot of people, they will hire somebody just to fill a seat and to check a box. And they're not concerned with whether or not the person can actually do the work. So it, it, it's just that when it comes to UX, we have to deal with it on a different level. Because they don't understand who we are. The hiring manager, the, the recruiters don't understand UX on average. A lot of the hiring managers, they a lot of companies hired non-UXers or people with no UX experience to run their UX teams. So that complicates things even further. When you get to the to the interviewing phase, a lot of, of people who are brought into the interview don't know how to interview, whether they have any UX experience or not. <laughs> they don't know how to interview. They don't know how to evaluate all this uh, brouhaha about UX portfolios and people don't realize that most folks do not know how to review a UX portfolio and mentioned before we started recording how did she's looking at going back and and, uh, and thinking about redoing her portfolio because of the different things that she goes through because of that and trying to make sure that you can present it in a way, uh, let me know if I get any of this wrong and presented in a way so that you can appeal to people who are the hiring managers, the recruiters, things of that nature. And, and none of these people will tell you that they have no idea what they're doing when it comes to looking at portfolios. And, and I've said this recently that portfolios were brought into the UX hiring process because people did not know what to do and how to evaluate UX talent. So they started looking at UX talent the same way they did with Visual design talent. Visual design talent had to bring in a pretty portfolio. Their work was supposed to be pretty. UX work, most of yeah. UX work is not pretty. Wireframes, look at my beautiful low fidelity wireframe. There's nothing pretty about that. Isaac's <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Isn't it? You, you, you're looking at my, my, my portfolio. You're looking at my wireframes. You're looking at my site maps. You're looking at my... Uh, a persona, really? A persona in your portfolio doesn't really mean anything. And this is coming from a person who has a higher level of UX maturity. So you're going to hear you're going to hear me say something they're not doing. Your, your your portfolio means nothing unless you show me how you built it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the reason why I was <laughs> laughing is, you know, I at first I said I'm doing a presentation for a take home assignment. Yeah. So. Uh, I was talking with a senior product designer who is also a hiring manager. Uh -oh. And I showed him the presentation, the storytelling, how 
the design process and everything. And the first thing that you said was, I have to show visuals in the presentation. I have to show like the high fidelity in the PowerPoint presentation no, from the start. So I was like, <laughs> it's a take-home assignment. <laughs> so it wasn't about the research, how I got the information, the process, everything, how I came up with the solution and everything. It was about the visuals that he wanted to see in the presentation. So, and he's a hiring manager at a top company. So I'm like, if the, this person is hiring, it means as a US designer, you are focusing more on the aesthetics, the, as someone would say, the pixel pushing more yep. than what a UX <laughs> designer does. Yep. So if you, you don't have that filter, you think you are a UX designer, but you are pushing more into graphic designer. Yeah. <laughs> you are yep. Not UX graphic, designer. it's UI designer. Because they are focusing on the UI more rather than the UX. Yep. And that's the yep. problem. I recently <laughs> interviewed with a company. They give me such a, such a big, high, like take-home assignments that I wouldn't be able to do. And it's not possible in three days. Trust me, it's, no one can do it. So what do you think about these high or big, big take-home assignments? What should we do? Because we don't know what's on the other hand. Can you please give a part to us? <laughs> it, it depends. Hey, there's, there's that answer again. <laughs> it depends. Uh, I've heard so many different, and I think we, we actually need to have a really strong it depends mindset because yeah. how many different <laughs> companies are out there? How many different types of take-home assignments out there? How many companies are going to take what you present and actually turn it around and make it a deliverable? Because companies are doing that. That's grossly unethical. And, and, and then some companies will give you a take-home assignment, but they'll pay you for it, which is makes it more ethical. But the take-home assignment, no matter what the scenario is, in my opinion, in my expert opinion, no matter what the take-home assignment is, it's really difficult to gauge somebody by what they do, even if you do an in-session an in assignment. because unless, unless the picture is painted properly, you cannot apply a broad level of expertise and deliver something in those take-home assignments that you really that really makes any sense. Nobody's delivering UX work in two, three days. Why yeah. do you think we can deliver it for an interview? So that's another people try to microwave everything. They try to microwave the work, they try to microwave the evaluation of talent. You simply can't do it. But a lot of people, they come up with these weird assignments and they want to look at portfolios because truth be told, they don't have the acumen to evaluate talent the right way. So they come up with these little cookie cutter, microwavable things that give them a sense of gratification or satisfaction, but it really does not provide the insights that are needed. Uh, I, I personally, as a hiring manager, a past hiring I'm not now. But I've been a hiring manager in the past. I'm at a manager level now without the title, which I love because I don't have to do, deal with any of the politics. I get to do my work and go home. I love that. But it's 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 funny how when I was a manager, I didn't care about your portfolio. I cared about your storytelling. And the more aesthetically pleasing a candidate's portfolio is, the more likely I am to reject them. <laughs> Because when you look at, when you look at, but this is coming from a more mature 
UX practitioner. The, the less mature a person is, the more aesthetically engaged they're going to be. Because I know that when I consider something like Jesse James Garrett's five planes, the top plane was the presentation layer. It was the aesthetic, the visual part of the design. It was the very top layer. <clears throat> and so we do, you got people showing you the top layer of their work when really, if you don't do the first four planes right, I don't care what that what that top layer looks like, it's not going to work. And so aesthetics without context doesn't mean anything, which is why we shut down all those old, which interface do you like better stuff that used to run rampant on LinkedIn all the time? We shut it down. We don't have any context. How do we know which one is supposed to be better? This is just, yeah, this this is A-B testing. Dude, we we have a whole lot to cover before we get there. Let's, 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 what are you trying to accomplish? And isn't it preference testing? That's, well, I haven't heard the phrase preference testing. And I would, I know that I hear about A-B, I know about A-B testing. I know about. I also know about the A/B testing. Yeah, and more multi. I've done preference testing slash desirability testing before. I think they're they're interchangeable. They're dangerous. Maybe I say it's, um, I say it's dangerous. And, and well, I was taught by somebody you really respect and know uh-huh. that A/B testing has to be done in over like five hundred people, and preference testing is under five hundred people. No, no, there's no okay. number. Mm-hmm. I'll There's tell no you number after after <laughs> you after you. This is known in U.S. research across the board. After X number of participants, um, then the the value that you get out of that testing uh, diminishes, which means that your cut point should be lower. Uh, I don't need to see 500 tests, uh, A/B tests, to see whether or not something works. In in a real world A B scenario, and we've done it before. I, I think about when we used to do it at Ford Motor Company, and we would have you. We would do it with live sites, and and A B testing means that there's one variation between the two, and we look to see how one performs versus the other. We weren't looking for that. This would probably might be more akin to what that person was saying. We weren't looking for a number. We weren't looking for 500 people. We just looked to see, hey, let's see how it performs over the course of a week. And, and after a week, we would see. So we didn't know how many. I mean, somebody knew how many, but we knew that this one performed better. And that's all we needed to know. And was it a substantial difference? Or or was it something that was so little that it's not even worth uh, considering? It doesn't matter which one we roll out. So there's a little bit more than just, is what I'm getting at. There's a little bit more than just the number of 500, but that's a real world AB. People will say that they're looking at, maybe this is where preference, where that, where that term came up, um, that people will do testing with a handful of people, show them a design, and then see which one, here's where I have a problem with that term, which one do you prefer? Never ask anybody what they prefer. Yeah, I, that's usually not yes. part of my preference test. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. That's a marketing thing. Marketers do that. Which one do you prefer? Which one do you like better? A or B? You know, act like you And it's to... <laughs> not the ideal question. Like it's not the ideal user yeah. question as well. You don't have to ask the user, what do you think? You have to figure it out what do they like. 
Bingo. That's your job. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. A good preference test. You don't ask what do you prefer. Okay. <laughs> that's just how I was taught at least. Um, yeah. Right, so, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like people act like we're going to the doctor getting their eyes checked. Which one looks better? One or two? <laughs> one or two? You know that? No, that. that's not. <laughs> that's not it. Uh, so yeah, it's about performance. Which is another reason why democratization is a bad thing because people think democratization actually means something different than what people today think it means. And so they have, you know, some Joe Blow in the department doing research and then they'll go out there asking questions they shouldn't ask for that reason. But, yeah, I'm not I'm very sensitive about terminology sometimes. So it depends on what they're presenting. But as soon as I hear the word preference, that's what I think. So if they're not doing that, great. But I guarantee you somebody is. I mean, democratization was originally about the it was about people coming together to collaborate about um, the uh, synthesis of data gathered during research. It was never about people going out and doing research, other people on other teams. And and, and I love what what Dr. Ari said um, about how that opportunity cost is what he called it, that when you get people who are not researchers doing research, whatever their job is, isn't being done. And that's going to counter, that's going to have detrimental impact upon the organization. So that's the big loss. Why people shouldn't be thinking, not only did they misunderstand what, what, um, what it was to be engaged from that perspective, not only did they misinterpret the terminology, but they are, they just completely missed the boat altogether. And, and now it's causing another problem democratization is causing another problem because you have people who should be project managers that are no longer for that period of time. They're not managing their projects for that period of time. They're not doing product owner work for that period of time. They're not doing whatever their discipline is. They're not doing it. And so that's, that's creating holes in other places, which is automatically going to be a loss for the team. So democratization is very dangerous. And sadly you have UX people, who are encouraging people to other people to do the work. And they'll say, well, I don't have enough people. Well, I guess you have to scale back on some of what you're doing then because it's a, it's a losing proposition to have other people do our work. I've been trying to take the old term back and flip it because like my, my boss came to me like six months ago and wanted back when we actually had like four or five product managers, we've shrunk in a little bit since then, but regardless, he was like, Hey, like, you know, let's, let's kick off some, um, like, like uh, a continuous discovery program, essentially uh, the same thing. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, you know, what? there just needs to be like all these guardrails and there's only one of me. And it basically got to this point where it didn't really get kicked off because it just didn't seem viable and yep. doable, especially now that we, we're a shorter team too. I don't think maybe they see as much of an impact, but what I've been saying is We've been doing that. I'm like, we have been democratizing it because I've been bringing you stakeholders along from beginning to end. Like I invite you to the interviews. I show you clips if you don't show up. Like that's (laughs) democratizing research actually. You know, I've been trying to to send that message and I I think it's worked a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. Take it it back, right? (laughs) (laughs) We have to. But unfortunately, a lot of people, again, because of the onslaught, you have a lot of people, they're finding out things about UX that they didn't know when they got into it. When you come across, there's pure UX and then there's the cult of UX. And there's a lot of people who came in to the cult of UX and they're finding out about pure UX. <laughs> 
and they're going, uh, oh, I, I need to, I need to push back when they say something that's wrong. Yeah, which means you have to identify when they're when the stakeholders are wrong, and it is our responsibility to push back diplomatically, professionally, respectfully, push back. Be willing to in a position to explain everything that you recommend. I I need to explain why I said yes. You do, yes, you do. That's what we do. Go ahead, Amon. <laughs> Yeah, one thing I'd like to share, I read a book. I actually read a lot of design books. Till now, I read almost 57 books. I'm on my 58th number. So there is a famous <laughs> book called Stakeholder Buying, maybe. So they're like, as much you as a designer, we know about the design. The stakeholder might not be. And they're not supposed to be. Yeah. So you have to yep. teach them. You have to make, at first, you have to try to make I empathize with them. Without empathy, you can't get the shit done. And in the book, they uh, they written like something. If you gonna talk about the work, at first talk about their plan, talk about their family, talk about their learnings, and then try to slowly go step by step. Yes. And it's the process. That's how you educate people. And whenever you have the ability to educate someone, then you can see yourself that oh my god, I did something in my life. So <laughs> if this is from myself, like. Always try to teach people. It will be beneficial for you as well as for the stakeholder or any other person in the world. Well, I'll piggyback on what Aman said and say it's the same process to design and sell a wedding cake to a bride. Wow. <laughs> it's the same process. Yeah. As you said before from one of your podcasts, UX design is not something new. It has been there years and years ago. And in our traditional system, we had been practicing U.S. design, but we didn't have the term and word for it. So when you go to our, let's say, our kinship, we have traditional kinship and those kind of things. They knew how to get stakeholder buying when they are bringing new rules into their communities. Yep. And that's key. I'll, I'll throw this in there again. I think I mentioned it in the last symposium session. For those of you who have not looked at uh, Aman mentioned books, here's another book for you. Uh, Designing for People, I believe it's called. The author's name is Henry Dreyfus. I may have gotten the title wrong, but if you look up Henry Dreyfus, this guy talks about all the stuff that he's talking about. It, it takes UX back to the beginning of the 20th century, basically. And it looks at just looking at also the, the pervasiveness of, of UX work it, it talks about it. There was nothing digital that was being done. But he was trying to make sure that the experiences that people had were optimal from working on plays to make sure that people were immersed in the plays that they went to, to he designed the first Hoover vacuum cleaner. He designed the first telephone, uh, the, the first or was it, was it the uh, I can't remember what the company was, but it was a particular phone that he designed. This guy was amazing. And what he did to make sure that the designs were empathetic, that they were reflective of the mental models of the users, that's stuff that we have to have in our repertoire. We really need to understand the work that he put into it. So whether we're working on something digital or not, you will see the how those principles are applied and how we can how we can drive wins for everybody. It's just some some great stuff. This is it designing for people, I want to say. Is it, uh, yeah. is it designing for people, right? Yeah, yeah, dynamite yeah. stuff. Designing for people. 
it not only teaches about the digital digital product it also teaches us the about the physical product as well because as a product designer we can do digital product design otherwise we can do physical product design the yes. process is same the quality is same the emphasis is always so why can't absolutely why do they call it service design now that's service design is different it's it, it's different but it's in the same arena especially when you see some of the service design mapping that's out i love the depth of service design and i would not be surprised it's already starting to happen but I would not be surprised to see at least a portion of the UX world start to move in the direction of service design. And for that reason, as, as I mentioned earlier, to be a UXer means that we're committed to lifelong learning. It's a good idea to learn what you can about service design now. You may not use very much of it right now in what you're doing when it comes to mapping and some of the other things that they do. But there's definitely going to be some things that you can leverage on the UX side of your work that will make you more valuable when you have that knowledge under under your under your belt, so to speak. Today I read uh, an article from, I would say, one of the founders of Google AI. I think he has resigned and he was talking about the impact of AI and how, I would say, it's like the good rush. So those who are selling the shovels and <laughs> the cement and everything are the ones who will be making money from yeah. AI, but not actually those who are using it. And I'm seeing it, especially on LinkedIn, where product designers that I follow are now changing their title to UI masters and hey, what do you call it? AI masters and AI gurus. Within <laughs> Since ChatGTP came, they have changed their title to UI AI masters and stuff, and they are selling courses and prompts and hundred prompts that you can use as UX designer, two hundred prompts that you can use master as your words say ultimate prompt that you can use as. Hey, I'm UX semi designer. guilty of that. So I think it's a <laughs> Mine says you product designer learning conversational AI. Because, but I, because I am, yeah. and the people I'm learning from are super legit. Yours is like, learning. Okay. Yours is learning. Learning, so right? Because perfect. I can't lie. I'm like yeah. incapable of like. That's why I cuss a lot. Yeah. They say people who cuss but, a lot can't lie. I'm not a good yeah. liar. So I am. I am, I am trying to flavor my UX with yeah. AI because if you don't, I think you're gonna get left behind. Yeah, but I know some people have to evolve yourself. Every day through the I know technology. some people from October, then they go to know about ChatGTP in just October. And now their titles have changed to Master AI Prompt Engineer and stuff. And they are selling prompt courses and stuff. So it's like snake oil business. So is, what's your take on the impact of AI? As answered, the positive impact of AI in the UX discipline. Um, you know what I'm going to say first, it depends. <laughs> so, <laughs> because there's, there's so many different angles. I like what Anne said because she's learning, learning where it can be applied. Uh, the people who are saying they're masters, that that's not true. Their AI just, it's been around for years, but it just had a massive, it's like a spike 
the the usage of and consideration of AI is a spike. It's like an earthquake. You know, one minute the ground was doing nothing, and the next thing you know, it's six point five on the Richter scale. If if I was to use that metaphor, AI is at eight point nine on the Richter scale compared to where it was not that long ago. Nobody can become a master at anything in this short of a period of time. So for that reason alone, uh, I would actually be very skeptical. Listen, when it comes to learning, go ahead and learn. Uh, I'm sure that Anne used critical thinking to confirm who's valid and who's not. I'm sure she's seen some people. Oh my God, what in the world are they talking about? Because not only are they only two steps ahead of you (laughs) and calling themselves masters, Uh, But they have not been around the track enough times to consider themselves masters. And so it's really dangerous from that perspective. I'd say learn what you can about AI. It it is not going to replace us because there's a lot of things that AI cannot do. AI was never even meant to replace us or anybody else for that matter. It is another tool. So I love one person I talked to said that they write, they'll write content. And they'll plug it into AI to ask it to do proofreading or make suggestions. Then they evaluate what AI says. That's an ethical sound use of AI. That's exactly what I do. And if I use it in a document, I Uh put a disclaimer at the top of the document that this was enhanced by ChatGPT. Because I write like I talk and I talk like a chef from New York. And that (laughs) does not read well. I rewrite. (laughs) I just rewrite everything because, like, I use it as it's like a writing assistant. Like, it gives me a draft and then I put it in my own words and then I don't have to even put a disclaimer. Right. And I Uh, like that it can break down difficult concepts to sixth grade level when I don't understand something that I'm trying to learn. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about it right now. Talk to me like I'm eight years old. So you have a concept you want to explain to stakeholders. You could. Say, hey, how would you explain this to a sixth grader? You exactly know? what I just used it for. Yeah. It was, I was working on a fintech product and the numbers and the money and how it were. It was really convoluted and complex. I explained it all to ChatGPT and it broke it down brilliantly. Yeah. And here yeah. our family ethics and our own ethics and the like the trustfulness or the goodness comes into play. Because if we can do the thing like, hey, I generated this, it's not the ethical way to do this. And and uh, I don't call her and I call her mom. And mom and Jack are the <laughs> sweetest and the most genuine people. That's why they posted in the disclaimer. But I, as I earlier told you, there are many people who just post that kind of stuff by giving their name that I made this. But it's, it's not actually that. So at first, you have to be truthful and genuine to yourself. Yeah. In every position, you have to clear out with yourself first. Then that everyone comes into play. Right, right. And I think I think there are a few things that people post about AI, which is not AI, it's about machine learning. Because from my background, but they use they misuse the term AI because it's a trending and hype word. So they will yep. use the term mm-hmm, AI. Mm-hmm. Just, it's yeah, not, there's nothing intelligent about it. <laughs> 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 it's right. about it. 
<laughs> we make it intelligent. When, they are not intelligent. Why they're biased? You know who started yeah. this? Elon Musk with the self-driving AI cars. I feel like that's like where the I, that's a, at least where yeah. I remember it like starting. And even those cars, like what three hundred thousand of them got recalled because they're not self-driving and they're not a they're not yeah. actually intelligent. And I think, um, very, but it is very, it's, very it's very in its infancy. That's the, the thing. Biases. It's in its infancy. It is. Yeah, but it's not intelligent. It's just it's it's parroting based it's, on probability. It's patterns is what it is. Yes. It's mathematical patterns. Yes. Oh, We've pretty okay. much we we had some topics that we were going to cover. We ended up covering them anyway. <laughs> we did. We didn't go at them <laughs> systematically. We just had what I would call a fireside chat, which is great. Fantastic input. I loved all the stories everybody shared. Uh, you would never know that people had were coming from these different vantage points and had these different these different pathways that they were taking to UX. So it's, it's great, absolutely great to hear these things. But time has run out. I know we're about to lose one person, so I don't want to sign off without everybody being here. Uh, but thanks to all of you for, for opting into this, uh, volunteering your time, and being transparent and being open on, on, on the show like this. I, I appreciate that, and the, the listeners will appreciate this as well. Uh, so, But in, we normally have a sign-off. Uh, but that'll probably get lengthy, so I'm gonna have to. That we won't. We won't have uh, final words from everybody, and we'll have to follow that suit all the way through. But thanks, Aman. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, Zach. Uh, and uh, we appreciate it. And and we right, we can run this back again. I offered that to the first group. We can run it back again another time if you want. Yeah, folks want to do that. <laughs> I would love to be part of this. <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, folks, it's time to sign off. So until next time, this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.